You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Later, we'll ask if the European Union needs its own army. But we begin in Israel, where voters go to the polls next week in an election that pollsters say is too close to call. Benjamin Netanyahu is seeking a fourth term as Prime Minister at the head of a right-wing coalition led by his Likud party. He faces a challenge from Labour's Isaac Herzog, who has joined forces with former Foreign Minister Tsipi Livni in the so-called Zionist Union. Last week, Mr Netanyahu stole the headlines with an address to the United States Congress, delivered in defiance of the White House. But at the weekend, more than 30,000 people demonstrated against the Prime Minister in the centre of Tel Aviv. And a former head of Mossad, Israel's intelligence service, said he wasn't afraid of Israel's enemies, but was more scared by Mr Netanyahu's government. I'm joined now from Jerusalem by our correspondent Mark Weiss and here in studio by Irish Times journalist Ruan McCormick who's re- been reporting from Israel on the campaign. Mark, what are those polls telling us? Well, uh, as you mentioned, it's a very close uh, call both uh, amongst the two leading parties, um, the uh, ruling or outgoing ruling Likud party, uh, which has shown about 22 to win, is projected to win about 22 seats in the 120-seat Knesset, and the centre-left Zionist camp, as you mentioned, headed jointly by Yitzhak Herzog, the Labour leader, and outgoing uh, Justice Minister Tsipi Livni, which is about two seats ahead, according to most polls, with 24. Now these are very low um, showings for leading parties uh, amongst. Uh, uh, all Western democracies. So, as usual in Israel, whatever happens, we will have quite a large coalition led either by Netanyahu's Likud or Herzog Zionist camp with uh, quite a few other uh, uh, smaller parties. In all, 11 parties are projected to win seats in the new um, Knesset. And whatever happens, it will be quite a wide-based coalition. One other option uh, being talked about is the possibility of a national unity government involving both the main parties, probably along with other parties as well, uh, with some kind of rotation agreement between Netanyahu and Herzog. Is that uh, at all likely to happen, do you think? It is a distinct possibility, and... The, the sad fact is that whatever happens, which either, whatever of these three options we have, either uh, a Likud-led right-wing religious coalition or some kind of um, coalition led by Herzog involving centre and uh, left parties and religious parties or a national unity government, none of these options uh, appears, uh, at least on paper, to have... Um, to, to be very stable. And people are already talking, before we've even had this election next week, of the possibility that whatever government is formed will probably not last more, much more than two years, and Israel could well be heading for new elections uh, within a couple of years. Now, the, uh, the election is very much uh, about Netanyahu, or at least he's very much front and centre in the election. And at the weekend, as I mentioned, there was this big rally in uh, Tel Aviv, which was a rally against Netanyahu. What was that uh, trying to say, or what was it about? This was basically um, a rally by, by the left in Israel. Basically, most people there were from uh, the left-wing Meretz party or the centrist uh, Labour party, 
uh, uh, now uh, morphed as the Zionist camp, it was a rally to calling for the change in government, that, uh, the arguing that the time has come after so many years of Netanyahu in charge, that the time has come for a change. Uh, and as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, the most prominent speaker was the former head of the Israeli Mossad, the intelligence chief, Mir Dagan, um, who did not mince his words. As you said, he said he's not, he's not worried about Israel's enemies. He's worried about Israel's current leadership, which he described as the worst leadership Israel has ever had. Is that an unusual view from within the uh, intelligence or defence establishment? Actually, not so much. Well, um, he certainly um, went out on the limb, and his criticism was very biting and very extreme. But um, former generals and former intelligence chiefs in Israel often tend to align with the centre and the left in this country uh, and be uh, outspokenly supportive of uh, the peace process and efforts to reach um, some kind of arrangement with the Palestinians. Um, so it wasn't so... Um, wasn't so out on the limb, if you like. And uh, certainly, Mir Dagan's opposition to Prime Minister Netanyahu is nothing new, uh, and there is quite a lot of bitterness between the two. Where Mr Netanyahu is concerned, there seems to be some confusion in the last few days about what exactly his position is on uh, the plausibility of a Palestinian state. He had some time ago come out and said that he uh, he favoured uh, a two-state solution and the creation of a Palestinian state, and now there seems to be some backtracking on that. Indeed, exactly as you said. He has gone on record as stating in a very important speech a few years ago that he supports a two-state solution. He supports the establishment of a Palestinian state uh, in the West Bank side by side with Israel. However, uh, certainly during this election campaign, he's uh, also on record as saying that uh, because of the regional turmoil in the Middle East, uh, and the, particularly the rise of Islamic uh, fundamentalism in almost every state in the region, particularly on Israel's borders, whether it be uh, Syria um, or Egypt in the Sinai or Lebanon, that, there is, uh, that territorial concessions by Israel at this juncture is simply not on the cards. So how do you square those two uh, different opinions? Because it's clear that without territorial concessions, without Israel giving back uh, almost all of the West Bank uh, to form a Palestinian state, there will be no two-state solution. So um, at, on paper, at least, the prime minister's office tried to clarify the apparent contradiction by saying uh, the theory of a two-state solution is still the prime minister's position, but it's just not feasible at this juncture. How is this playing for him politically, or, or was it? Do you think it was politically motivated? All of these, uh, this change in position. I think it was politically motivated. Most of the campaigning we've had in this election is not uh, as it has been traditionally between the right and the left. Most of it has been within the two separate camps. Netanyahu is very worried that traditionally could voters will slip away to the uh, more extreme right-wing parties, particularly the Jewish Home Party, led by Naftali Bennett. And therefore, he is going out on a limb to be more right-wing in order to um, persuade those potential uh, voters to stick with the Likud. And the same thing is happening on the left. The, uh, the center-left, the Zionist camp, Herzog, is worried that... Um, 
uh, worried about losing voters to other centrist parties and to the left-wing merits. So that's where most of the Labour campaign uh, is directed, not necessarily against Netanyahu, although of course that's an element, but more with shoring the voter on the centre-left and making sure they stick with Labour. Both the Likud and Labour are sending out very uh, similar uh, election campaigning that they must, there must be uh, a very big party uh, on either the left or, uh, or, or the right in order to, to form the government. Remember, the system in Israel is not necessarily um, that the biggest party uh, forms the government, but the, all the uh, representatives, the heads of all the parties who win seats, will recommend to uh, the president after the election who they want to be prime minister. And on the basis of that, the president will task uh, one of the candidates to form a government. Um, it's interesting to note that in 2009, the centrist Kadima party, led then by Tsipi Livni, was the biggest party and received one more seat than the Likud. However, President Shimon Peres, after hearing the recommendations from all the other party heads, actually tasked Benjamin Netanyahu with forming a, forming a government. So Labour's message is that if you want a left-centre government, there has to be quite a big gap um, uh, between the Labour and Likud. Labour probably needs a gap of four seats over Likud in order to be tasked with forming a government. And the same message Netanyahu is saying to the right-wing voters, if you want uh, a right-wing government, the Likud has to be significantly ahead of Herzog's party after the poll. Uh, Ruan McCormack, uh, you were uh, reporting in the Irish Times this week that uh, what you were hearing uh, on the streets in Israel was that people were saying, we want anybody but Netanyahu, but they're probably likely to actually choose Netanyahu as prime minister. That's right. There's something of a dichotomy in people's attitudes towards Netanyahu. On the one hand, as you say, there's no great affection for him. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's a sense that um, it's for the other the alternative candidates to prove that uh, th that that they can be trusted. I mean, Netanyahu is well known to the people of Israel. When you look at the opinion polls uh, and surveys that are carried out, uh, people will tell pollsters that they have no great affection for him, that they're quite tired of him, and they'd like him gone. On the other hand, they know him well. Uh, he's trusted to a certain extent. He's looking for his fourth term in office. Um, and so when they're asked, who would you see as the most likely or most um, attractive candidate for prime minister, he comes out on top. Um, inevitably, given that he's been in power for so long, um, as you say, the campaign is very much focused on him. I would say that it's one of the two major issues in the campaign, along with the economy. Um, for example, while I was traveling around Israel, the big story for at least five days was a report by the state controller about spending at the two Netanyahu residences, um, their private villa and their home in Jerusalem. Um, there was a huge amount of coverage given to the findings of this report about spending in the two homes, that they spent €20,000 on takeaway food in 2013 and this sort of thing. Um, and this was very much um, used by the, by the left, by the Zionist Union, to, to, to get at Netanyahu. Certainly true that Netanyahu is, is one of the big um, topics of the campaign. The big question is whether um, Isaac Herzog and Sipi Livni can persuade enough Israelis that they, uh, that, that they are qualified, that they're able uh, to replace him. 
Uh, and as you mentioned, the, uh, these are the two issue, big issues. Whereas when people outside Israel think about Israel, mostly they're thinking about the occupation. But the occupation of uh, Palestine is not really a major issue. It hasn't figured to any great extent. Um, I suppose that both of the leading parties, the Zionist Union on the one hand and the Likud on the other, are losing to a certain extent when they're speaking about the occupation. The Likud, because the party is divided and Netanyahu is under quite a lot of pressure to his right um, on this, on the issue, on the future of the West Bank, on um, the possibility of a peace settlement with the Palestinians. The Zionist Union, because they feel they have they get greater purchase out of speaking about the economy, um, that they connect with voters um, on the economy in the way that they don't, in a way that they don't on the occupation, on the peace process in general. Um, I think there are two other factors in play here as well, which are that Israel has enjoyed relative security over the, the last seven or eight years, certainly since the Second Intifada ended. Um, if you're, unless you're living in the south within rocket range of Gaza, um, it, security isn't a topic that impinges on your daily life in a way that it would have maybe 10 years ago. Um, the second um, force is uh, a general sense of pessimism about the prospect of a successful peace settlement with the Palestinians. One thing you hear very often, it's a line that Naftali Bennett um, has been, has been um, pushing very hard, is this idea that we cannot make serious concessions, territorial concessions in the West Bank because of what happened in Gaza when we unilaterally withdrew in 2005. In other words, as it's portrayed by him, some would argue in, in too reductionist a way, but he would argue that we pulled out of Gaza unilaterally, we got international applause for two or three days, but what did it get us in the long run other than three wars and international opprobrium? And he would apply the same rationale to the arguments about the West Bank. Naftali Bennett is putting Likud under a lot of pressure to the right. Um, so I think these are some of the reasons why, um, why the occupation hasn't figured to a great extent. I suppose also the fact that most people are genuinely concerned about the economy. Um, there was another report from the state controller uh, last week that showed that the cost of uh, a house uh, on average in Israel had, written, has, had risen by 55% in five years, which corresponds broadly with the last term uh, of Netanyahu in office. Uh, rents rose by 30% in the same period. So these are genuine concerns that people have. And there's a particular concern among young people that they can't attain the standard of living that their parents or previous generations would have had. Uh, you mentioned the international, uh, international opinion. And the international community, would it be fair to say the international community would be very pleased to see the back of Mr. Netanyahu? I think that's fair. I think um, if it's one thing to say that there's very little affection for Netanyahu domestically. I'd say it's even more true that there's very little affection for him internationally. Um, we know that there's uh, a great deal of tension between him and the White House, um, also between him and European leaders. Uh, I think there's a general sense that Netanyahu has, while being a cautious leader militarily, has been extremely reluctant to take any sort of peace initiatives during his four terms in office. Um, that he's leading a, a coalition of the right that isn't necessarily all that coherent on these questions uh, or cohesive. Um, and that there's a sense, I think, um, among uh, the international community 
that to to move the peace process along to to restore some sort of trust and faith between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli leadership that new a new government in 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 Israel would would help now whether that's a government of the left or as Mark suggested a, some sort of a uh, some sort of a broader uh, government of national unity we'll have to wait and see but I think it's certainly true that um, a Netanyahu defeat would be seen in some quarters as a as a, a useful opportunity to start afresh. And if Netanyahu were to go and there were to be a new prime minister leading a new government in Israel, would that change or improve the attitude towards Israel in places like Europe and indeed some parts of the US? I think views in both places are quite entrenched. But I think at the same time that if um, a genuine attempt was made on both sides to uh, revive the peace talks. Um, if gestures were made, for example, on, on settlements, uh, Herzog and Livni have both said that the, one of the first things they would do if they were uh, victorious would be to go to Ramallah and, and start talking to Abbas, uh, look to see whether their conditions were there for a resumption of serious peace talks. Second thing that they would do is to uh, freeze the building in settlements outside of what they call the major settlement blocks, which are four or five very large towns uh, on the um, West Bank side of the Green Line. So I think there would be, at, at minimum, there would be a symbolic, stylistic change in Israel's approach to the conflict. Um, and, and in the absence of anything else, I think that would help and it would potentially uh, uh, shift international opinion in some way. Uh, Mark Weiss, how much do you think would actually change where the peace process is concerned if uh, Mr Netanyahu were to be replaced by Mr Herzog? I think it's fair to say there would be a more positive atmosphere. Uh, the Palestinian side, I think, would certainly view um, a, a government led by uh, Herzog and Livni as a uh, in a less suspicious manner than they do uh, uh, a Netanyahu government, they've lost all faith uh, that Netanyahu could uh, is a genuine partner for peace. But uh, remember, it was Sipi Livni who has been Israel's chief negotiator in the last two uh, main rounds of negotiation when she was uh, uh, a minister in, in the Ehud Olmert government and last year uh, when she was justice minister in the Netanyahu government. Those negotiations did not lead to a breakthrough. The negotiations last year of almost one year, as far as we know, led to no significant narrowing of the gaps on any of the major issues. So even if we get to the stage of a new government, a centre-less government, and a resumption of peace negotiations, it doesn't necessarily bring peace any closer. It doesn't mean that we have uh, an agreement in the offing. Um, and in, in the Middle East, when you have a vacuum, when you have failed uh, peace talks or peace talks negotiations that are going nowhere, then often uh, that vacuum uh, results in a new wave of violence. So from the Israeli perspective, it would be another major risk. And remember that the uh, risk being taken with the West Bank is much more significant than uh, either Gaza or South Lebanon. Uh, the West Bank is very close to all Israeli major population centers. At some, stage, at some areas, it's only uh, 10 miles from the Israeli coast, from the Mediterranean. So Israel, well, the average Israeli, I think, uh, still supports peace, still supports the idea of reaching a settlement with the Palestinians, but do not want to take risks, uh, are very fearful that Hamas may take control of the West Bank, and the West Bank 
would become similar to what the Gaza Strip is uh, today. Mark, what will determine the outcome next week, or what at least should we be watching for as the votes are being counted? There is a feeling in Israel um, of um, a surprise in the air, and there are a number of factors um, to point to that they to to indicate that there may be a significant change uh, next week when Israel goes to the polls. There are still a lot of undecided voters. Um, and we've had a tradition in the last three elections, on the last day, on the actual day of elections, like something like eight seats have just cropped up on election day from nowhere. In 2006, these went to the Pensioners' Party. In 2009, these went to uh, the Kadima Party, led by Livni. And uh, in the last election, they went to Yair Lapid's centrist party. So um, quite significant change is possible on election day. And we've also had a, a trend of the last two elections that the Likud, which is the party, of course, led by the prime minister, tends to lose a large number of seats in the last week of the campaign. Uh, significantly, this has been uh, between 10 and 20 percent. So uh, if this happens again, and it's happened the last two times, uh, we're talking about a phenomenon that the Likud actually receives a lot less seats in the poll than all the uh, uh, p uh, polls predicted. This could put the Likud uh, at, ev at 20 or even less seats and mean a significant uh, gap and a significant victory for Labour, something that would be, um, would be a disaster for the Prime Minister, but it's possible. Mark One Christ. more factor, interesting factor, is that a few days ago the Labour Party booked uh, Rabin Square in Tel Aviv for what may be um, a celebration on the night of the election campaign. So certainly on the left, and it's not uh, on the centre, it's, not, it's, not, it's more than just uh, um, uh, wishful thinking, I think, there is um, an atmosphere that uh, significant change could be in the air. On the ground, the electioneering, uh, we, hear, we he keep hearing reports that the, uh, the rank and file of the Likud is very dejected. They're finding it very difficult to get the activists out on the street. There is a significant uh, bibi fatigue, if you like. So uh, certainly from the centre and the left, we keep hearing that uh, change is possible and anything, uh, it's all up for grabs next week. So, Mark, your uh, prediction would be change? Your feeling is that there will be change? I think Labour could, uh, could pull it off with a significant uh, gap of maybe three to four seats over the Likud. Um, this may encourage um, the centrist parties and even some of the religious parties to um, recommend Herzog over Netanyahu, and then it's all up for grabs. It could be that uh, Labour will come to, uh, come to power again in Israel after a 14-year gap. Mark Weiss in Jerusalem and Ruan McCormick here in Dublin, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. The President of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, thinks it's time the European Union had its own army to show Russia that it's serious about defending European values. In an interview with Germany's Welt am Sonntag newspaper, Mr Juncker said that if it had its own army, the EU could react in a credible manner when faced with a threat to freedom in a member state or a neighbouring country. The idea was dismissed straight away by Britain. 
which said there was no prospect of it changing its position that defence must remain a national responsibility. But Mr Juncker's remarks received a welcome in Berlin, where Germany's defence minister, Ursula von der Leyen, has been pressing for more European defence cooperation for some time. So is it just a Federalist pipe dream, or is it really time for Europe's soldiers to start fighting under the blue and gold flag of the European Union? To discuss this, I'm joined from Brussels by our European correspondent Suzanne Lynch, from Berlin by Derek Scally, and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith. Suzanne, what is Mr Juncker on about? Um, well, his his suggestion has got a kind of mixed response here in Brussels, but it's been greeted with scepticism really across the board. I mean, it's widely considered that Mr. Juncker was making a point here. He, he said it himself in this interview. He pointed out that Europe is not taken seriously as a foreign policy force, and it was seen very much as a, as a message to Russia. Um, I think one of the contexts to keep in mind here is that in June, the European Council is due to discuss defence. So that's going to be on the agenda. And in a way, it could be seen as Juncker setting out the Commission's position on this, trying to take control of the narrative ahead of that, that meeting in June. Um, for a long time, defence was off the radar in Brussels. And it was only in December 2013 that the European Council uh, spoke about defence for the first time in five years. Um, but since that point, um, between then and, and this June, obviously things have changed. We have the developments in Ukraine and the threat of ISIS, uh, particularly in the southern borders of Europe. So the whole discussion has taken on a more serious tone um, and uh, is of a more pressing concern. So that might change the terms of debate in June. We do have, Suzanne, uh, some European defence cooperation, uh, both inside NATO and, mm. uh, and outside the NATO structure. Uh, is, is there talk of deepening this generally, even beyond what uh, Mr Juncker has been going on about? Yes, I mean, one of the issues is that even countries like Ireland that are neutral are involved in European defence policy to some extent. So Ireland, for example, is involved in the CSDP missions. These are military and civilian mi missions in certain countries. So, for example, Ireland is involved in a, in a military mission in Mali and in Bosnia, and then in various kind of civilian missions, including in Ukraine, although any involvement by Ireland needs the, um, needs the agreement by the Dáil and the Cabinet and a UN mandate. So to an extent, Ireland is invested in, in EU defence policy, although, as we know from the Lisbon Treaties and the debates that happened around the Lisbon Treaty, um, we, there's, no, there's no suggestion at all that Ireland's neutrality is compromised in any way. So to an extent, Ireland and other member states have bought into European defence policy. But the big question is, does Europe need... Need, a, need, a, need an army when, when NATO was there. Um, and another the argument which Britain is, is making is that um, a European army would, would be a, a pale comparison to anything that NATO, which is the biggest, world's biggest military alliance, is already offering. So there really there isn't any space in, in the global context for a European army or an effective European army. Derek Scally, Suzanne has uh, been telling us there hasn't uh, been much support for Mr Juncker's idea, except in Germany, where they seem to be quite keen. Why is that? Indeed, obviously, because of, of Germany's history in the 20th century, anything to do with military intervention is viewed very cautiously here. And um, in public opinion, there's never really been any enthusiasm um, for German soldiers, boots on the ground elsewhere in the world. Although in the last um, 10 and 15 years, Germany has been slowly broadening its military engagement in the world um, from, uh, from the intervention in Serbia, uh, Afghanistan, and for any country that uh, accuses 
Germany of uh, trying to keep its uh, itself out of danger. Germany always hits back. That says whether it's uh, Afghanistan or fighting piracy and the Horn of Africa, Germany is in there. Um, but the, the German government really is facing on two two competing interests. It's it's aware of this growing expectation, not just in the euro crisis, but definitely in the Ukraine crisis, with with Angela Merkel leading leading the diplomatic effort on that. And there's an expectation that if they're leading the diplomatic effort, they should really be putting a, a threat of a military engagement behind that diplomatic effort. So Germany is feeling the pressure on that front. But because of its history, it's always very, very anxious not to go alone, to go it alone. And um, this EU idea would give Germany a chance to meet the expectations on the one hand to for greater uh, Berlin-led military engagement, but on the other hand, not pushing out on its own, not German uh, soldiers marching into European neighbours that have uh, very negative memories of German soldiers marching across their borders uninvited. And then there's another aspect, um, quite simply money. Um, Germany wants to to um, meet these expectations, but it wants to spend less money or at least be more effective in how it spends its money. And there's been a huge series of, of disastrous um, claims that Germany is spending money on helicopters that don't fly and um, submarines that don't um, that don't submerge and so on. And the, the, the German defence minister, Ursula von der Leyen, is talking about smarter defence. How do we pull resources to get more bang for our buck, so to speak? And um, Juncker's uh, spokesperson in Brussels said that they've got some studies saying that if we pull the resources in a more intelligent way, we could get the same military involvement for at a saving of 100 or 120 billion euro and obviously this is just picked out of the sky but that would very much be in line with what germany is trying to do smarter defense be more intelligent and it would be a european army would be a way of engaging in the world and showing its critics that it is actually involved and interested in uh, global security there have been some uh, leading figures in german public life calling for a more assertive military role for germany notably the president joachim gauck but has that uh, have those urgings budged public opinion at all? No, not really. I mean, public opinion is pretty much split. Um, a year ago, the German president said uh, we can't confuse a, a culture of restraint, is what they call a military culture of restraint, with a culture of trying to keep out of trouble, that Germany, because of its past, um, has an obligation to intervene in, in areas where global uh, security is under threat, even if that threat appears geographically far away from Germany. But the German public refuses to budge, and one half of the public is in favour of this. Another half just says we, are, we should be the last country anyone in the world should be asking. So that's, uh, that's where public opinion is. And um, the Angela Merkel's intervention in Ukraine has very much followed this cautious approach. She said uh, in the Munich Security Conference uh, earlier this year, she didn't really see any situation where military involvement or weapons would, um, would improve the situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia. So uh, German, the German Chancellor is taking a cautious approach. The Foreign Minister, the Defence Minister and the President are saying Germany needs to be more involved. So perhaps this European idea would be a way of it would be a, an elegant compromise that everyone could be involved. Paddy Smith, this idea of a European army, a federalist pipe dream? Um, probably. I, I think the, there's an awful lot of, of uh, Juncker promoting his own federalist agenda in, in the, the suggestion. He, he, he must know 
that it is a p political uh, non-runner. Non and I think it's important in this context to distinguish between uh, different types of European defence uh, that have been under discussion. Um, the, the issue that has come up in treaty after treaty is the, is the moving progressively towards common European defence. Now, that's not necessarily a common European army. What that is is, is an agreement that if one is attacked, somebody else will, will, will come to their defence. And uh, that's something that, that Ireland, because of its neutrality, has, has said we don't need to be involved in, we don't want to be involved in. The European army is a sort of separate idea, and you have in embryonic form elements of European army at, at the moment in, in the battle group formations, which are temporary uh, um, groups of multinational forces that are sent for, for rapid re response reasons to different parts of the world. Uh, there, are, there are elements of, 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 of European army in, uh, if you like, in, in, in that. But the reality is that the vast majority of, of EU members, 22 out of 28 countries, are members of NATO. They regard NATO as the body which will defend them. They are, it is the body to which there is a, this Article 5 commitment to protect one another if coming under attack. So Juncker's uh, speech is really not, not terribly sensible because it takes no account really of those, of those realities. So is there anything that uh, a European army could usefully do that can't be done through uh, simply uh, you, uh, all these various forces combining? Um, the answer, the answer is, I find I find it difficult to to see what added value it would give. There is a, a framework agreement currently under underway between European defence ministers, uh, which I think is going to be part of the discussion at the defence and the the summit in in June on increased cooperation and and you know uh, buying the same weapons and doing research on on. Uh, uh, things like that. And there is a thing called the European Defence Agency through which cooperation is already happening. So a lot of the things that an army would do, a European army would do, are already underway. Well, Mr Juncker might have given us a clue as to what it might do when he said that uh, one of the things it could do would be to, uh, to respond to a threat to freedom in a member state. Well, this is complete nonsense because uh, if you're if you're talking about uh, you know at its most ludicrous it, a European army marching in to protect the uh, Hungarian government from a people that's about to overthrow it, uh, that is certainly not going to be, happen. It's not contemplated by anybody. What Could I it think protect it, the people from the state? <laughs> even less likely, if you don't mind me saying so, because that's not the way the European Union functions. The, uh, the more likely thing that he is referring to is cooperation against international terrorism. And that some elements of that is happening al already in Europe through uh, the, the European uh, Common Justice uh, area. Uh, and I think that's probably what he was addressing to. Suzanne Lynch, this is never going to happen, is that right? Yeah, I think what, what a couple of things to say here is, uh, firstly, I mean, Jean-Claude Juncker has always been a federalist and has always been a supporter of the idea of a European army. He's a former Luxembourg prime minister, and a lot of the Benelux countries, France, have, have always been in, in favour of this. So to an extent, um, it is not that much surprise that he, he's the man who's articulating this. One could also, I mean, a conspiracy theory, if you like, could be, you know, is he trying to claim this territory of, if you pardon the pun, of, of defence policy and, and foreign policy when um, over across the road here in Brussels in the European Council, Donald Tusk is taking a very strong line on foreign, on foreign affairs and defence. And 
an official was saying to me that the way the kind of division of labour we see working out here at the moment is that when Angela Merkel wants to call someone in Europe about Ukraine, Donald Tusk gets the phone call, and if she wants to call somebody about Greece in the Eurozone, Jean-Claude Juncker gets the, gets the first call. So maybe we could see Juncker trying to kind of muscle in on this ground, to an extent. But I also think that um, a context, um, the UN, the US ambassador to the UN, Samantha Power, this week, uh, reiterated calls for Europe to do more on defence. And this is a regular argument from the US in terms of NATO and, and the expenditure by Europe uh, on defence and, and foreign policy. Um, so we could see Juncker trying to claim, look, Europe is prepared to, to, to put that bit more investment into defence um, and trying to kind of um, make that point ahead of the June Council to, to counter these claims that, that consistently come from Washington, that Europe is not doing enough in terms of its responsibility in defence policy and foreign policy um, in terms of spending. Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, Derek Scally in Berlin and Paddy Smith here in Dublin, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories on irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. Mm-hmm.